This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. This marvelous, exceptional timepiece found over in Daniel chapter 9. So you might turn over there. This is one of the great passages of Scripture that's before us. And this, this timepiece was given to Daniel when he was about 90 years old. Now, it wasn't given to him as a retirement party. This is not one of those classical gold watches you get when you're finished. Daniel is far from finished, even though he's 90 years old. But this is this remarkable timepiece made not out of gold, but out of prophecy. It's not to measure the present. It's to measure the future. And so precisely that anyone who looks at it for, for any length of time like you will today, because I promise you, before you leave, you'll be holding this text and you will literally see it radiate the supernaturalness of God. This is one of the great texts of Scripture. And of all things about this timepiece, it's what's on the dial of this timepiece that we'll look at and have a chance to explore here this morning. Because you see, this watch that was given to Daniel was given to him in the 6th century B.C., 500 plus years before Jesus Christ would walk on the scene. And yet, at the same time, this timepiece, when you look at it closely, it will pinpoint the exact moment in history when the Jewish Messiah will walk into Jerusalem and present Himself as the Christ. The exact moment. The exact moment. This is a thrilling text. You know, in the 17th century, there was a converted Jew who wrote a book because of his conversion out of this text. And in the preface, he talked about how he became a Christian. And what it was, there was a debate from another converted Jew against a learned scholar of Judaism with a rabbi kind of moderating the debate. And in the midst of the debate, this converted Jew turned to Daniel chapter 9 and began to press the principles and the supernatural kind of time sequences of this great prophetic chapter. And he pressed them home so strongly that in the midst of the debate, the rabbi jumped up and he said these words, Let us shut up our books. For if we go on examining this prophecy, we'll all become Christians here. <laughs> now that, that's an incredible statement, but you know what? This is an incredible chapter. One of the marvelous texts in all the Bible. So we want to look this morning at Daniel chapter 9. Look, if you would, and read with me the first couple of verses as this chapter starts off. Here's what it says. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And that's important. Namely, 70 years. It's so important to know where Daniel is. Now remember where we are in this book. Daniel is in Babylon. The whole nation of Israel has been carted off into a captivity. And they were so because at one time, though a prosperous nation, they turned from God. God used this evil empire to discipline and chastise His people and carry them off. And so Daniel has been in this captivity for a number of years. And even though he was a prophet, even though he received visions and dreams from God, as we've already seen, he was a student of Scripture. And he had a discipline in the Scripture. And so here we find him 
opening up the sacred scrolls, and in particular the sacred scrolls of Jeremiah the prophet. He's reading Jeremiah. Now Jeremiah lived in Jerusalem before the Babylonian captivity. He could feel it coming. He knew of God's discipline and judgment. And in the midst of that time, God revealed to him what was about to take place. So in Jeremiah 29, he prophesies that the nation will fall to Babylon and be carried off into a captivity, and then he names how long it's going to be. So he gives Daniel, before Daniel gives us his timepiece, Jeremiah gives Daniel his timepiece. He says, you know how long you're going to be in captivity? Seventy years. He said that even before the nation was taken away. Now Daniel looked at his watch. He added it up and they had been in captivity as he read this scroll, 67 years. So what do you think he's thinking? He's thinking, we're going to be released here pretty soon. In fact, he could even sense that because the Babylonians, which had been the world power, had already now, over the 70-year period of time, sunk down to a lesser power. And the power that now was the world-dominating empire was the Medo-Persian Empire. That's why your, your chapter starts out with Darius, who was made king over the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonians, same word, Chaldeans, Babylonians. But you notice he's of Median descent. Do you see that? He's a Medo-Persian. And now he's come in and subjugated the Babylonian Empire. So Daniel looks out and he says, things are happening. The world is changing. And he opens up the scrolls of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says, you're only going to be in captivity 70 years. And so Daniel says, things are about to change for us. Now what? Does this mean we're going to be released back to our land? Do we get to build our temple? Are we going to become a glorious empire that we once were under Solomon? What is going to happen to us? That's what he's thinking about as he reads those scrolls. And of course, as he thinks about those and the changes that are about to come, he goes into prayer. And that's what follows starting in verse 3. Notice it says, So I gave my attention after reading this to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. What, God, are you going to do with us? Is really his prayer. And what follows in verses 4 through 19 it's one of the great prayers of Scripture, but we're not going to look at that this morning because here's what happens as he prays this great prayer, offering himself and his people up. In the midst of that prayer, that prayer never gets finished because an angelic messenger appears to Daniel. And as he does so, as he interrupts this process in Daniel's petition, he presents Daniel with a present. And the present that Daniel gets is a supernatural watch. That's what he gets. That tells not just the time of Israel's future after they get released from captivity, not just the immediate future. He describes Israel's future, Israel's future for all time. All of it is given in explicit detail. And that's what we want to look at here this morning. So look at verse 20 and let me read. He says, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplications before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in visions previously, came in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offerings. And he gave me instruction and he talked with me and he said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued. And I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Now here's the vision. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people 
and your holy city. Seventy weeks. Now that's where we want to start here this morning. What does he mean by 70 weeks? 70 weeks, he says, have been decreed. The word decreed means literally to cut out, to apportion. And so what he's saying is, for Israel, for its future, for all time, 70 weeks have been apportioned, cut out, decreed for this nation, for God to use and to work through. Now, 70 weeks is certainly a time period. You can pick that up almost immediately, but it's certainly a time period that is unusual. It's not exactly a household word, is it? 70 weeks. Literally in Hebrew, it's 70 sevens. That's the way you would read it literally in Hebrew. And that's because the Jewish numbering system was based not on tens like the Romans, tens, twenties, thirties, hundreds, two hundreds. It was based on sevens. That started with a very basic concept. Man is the number four, north, south, east, and west. God is the number three. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And when you put four with three, what do you get? Seven. And when God started the creation, He did the creation in how many days? Seven. It was seven days. How many days in a week? Seven. How many years in a sabbatical, when a sabbatical years rolled forth in the law of Israel? Seven years. There would be six years, and then the seventh year, the land would rest. After seven of those sevens, or the 49th year, you would have the 50th year in Israel, which would become the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, all debts were forgiven, all lands that you had acquired were restored to the original owners, and it was a tremendous celebration of what God had done. And now here, as God, through the angel Gabriel, sets forth this timepiece, this clock, this supernatural clock for the nation of Israel, he says, you know, when you time Israel's future, it's based around sevens too. Seventy sevens. Now I want you to know all scholars have seen those, that, that phrase, seventy sevens, in terms of years. And so if you look at it in that sense, seventy sevens equal how many years? 490 years. 490 years have been specifically set apart for Israel and Jerusalem for a future. Now, what's that future to do? What is to accomplish? What, what purposes or reasons does God want to use those 490 years that He's given Israel to accomplish? Well, they're found in the last part of verse 24. Let me just read them. There's six of them. Notice. It says, 70 weeks have been cut out for your people and your holy city, and here's why because we want to finish the transgression. We want to make an end of sin. We want to make atonement for iniquity. We want to bring in everlasting righteousness. We want to seal up vision and prophecy, and we want to anoint the most holy place. In 490 years, God says, this is what I'm gonna do through you, Israel. Now, when you look at those, those six, one of the things is just a clear observation is they fall neatly into two categories, three and three. The first three deals with sin, don't they? I mean, that's real clear. You can just see that as an observation. The second three deal with eternity. We're talking about something that occurs most likely, as we'll find out later in our passage, at the end of the 70 weeks. Everlasting life and so forth and so on. So the first three deal with things that are going to occur in time. The second three deal with things that are going to occur at the end of time. 490 years, six purposes or reasons 
for those 490 years. And now in verses 25 through 27, Daniel is told how these 490 years and these six purposes for Israel will actually play out in history. Okay? Everybody keep your thinking cap on because we're going to move real quick. All right? First, he talks about the 69 weeks in verse 25. Look at verse 25 there. It says, so Daniel, you are to know, because I want to give you understanding, and I want to give you discernment. Now listen, that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem right now is in ruins. But from an issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince comes, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or 69 weeks. Okay, little math. 69 times seven is how many years? 483 years. So here's the clock. Here's what he's saying. He's saying from the time a decree is issued to rebuild Jerusalem, whenever that's going to come. For Daniel, that's still future. In fact, it's going to be way in the future. But from the time that decree is issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the time the Messiah, who we know to be Jesus, comes into the holy city to present himself as the Messiah, there will be 483 years. Now, when you look in the biblical books of Ezra and Nehemiah, there were three decrees that later came on by Persian kings. Remember, Persia is the ascending empire. Babylon is the descending empire. Three Persian kings came along and issued decrees about Israel and Jerusalem and the temple. Two of those decrees had to do with rebuilding the temple. Would that fit our prophecy? No, because it's not talking about rebuilding the temple. It's talking about what? Rebuilding the city. And what we know is there was one decree that was given to rebuild the city. In fact, we won't turn there, but if you turn to Nehemiah chapter 2, you see that decree written right before you. It's the decree of Artaxerxes, a later king of Persia, who issued a decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, which Nehemiah helped construct. And it says there that he issued that decree in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the king, in the month of Nisan, not the motor car, the month of Nisan. Now, that, doesn't, that, that helps us a little bit. It doesn't exactly pinpoint the date, but it does help us a little bit. What helps us a lot is not what the biblical record said, it's what the secular record says. Because see, at the same time that King Artaxerxes lived, another man lived by the name of Herodotus, a great Greek historian. Herodotus was very proficient in writing down very specific things that were occurring in the world around him. So much so that even today in the university, they look back on Herodotus as the father of history. He was the one who was kind of the, the primal historian that everybody looks back on. Well, the good news is that Herodotus lived at the same time as King Artaxerxes. And he knew what was going on. And he followed the events and recorded them. And he recorded the decree that was issued by King Artaxerxes to go and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. He gives us the exact date. March the 14th, 445 B.C. That's when he issued that decree. Now, that leads me to say, well, gosh, if we got numbers like that, can we add all that up? Yeah, you can. And people in the past, Christians and others in the past, like in that debate, have added these numbers up. So let's just make a rough calculation on the screen. Let me show you what I mean. Here's what it would be. If you just took 
just a rough calculation, March the 14th, 445 BC, and added the 483 years, what you would get is March the 14th, 39 AD. Now you go, well, that's close. <laughs> you know, maybe we could stretch it a little bit. Maybe the dates are out of whack or what, but that's close. Well, it is close. The, the, the difference is, though, which is very clear to anybody that does a little research, and I got all this, by the way, from Sir Robert Anderson's book, The Coming Prince. Sir Robert Anderson was the head of Scotland Yard and a very devout Christian, and he did all this study for us and broke it down. You can get the book yourself and read it, but here's the way it falls out. He discovered that in the Jewish framework, when this was written, Jews did not operate at this time on a solar year, 365 days a year, but on a Jewish calendar year of 360 days. So we got to refigure, we got to make some adjustments here. Here's how we would do that. We would take 483 years and just simply multiply it by 360 days. Okay, and what we get out of that is 173,880 days. But to recalibrate it to solar years, we've got to then turn around and take those 173,880 days and divide it by 365, right? So we know how many years it is to fit into, I mean, to fit into Herodotus's figures. And what we get is 476 years with 140 days left over. One other little brief tweak though. In those 476 years, there's leap years. So in some of those, you have to divide it by 366 days, right? So we have to take out the leap year days, and there are 116 leap year days. So that just gives us the figure 476 years with 24 days to add to March the 14th, okay? That's the final thing. So now we can get an exact calculation. So what we do is we come down here and we say, okay, it's March the 14th, 445 BC. That's when the decree was issued, right? And we're gonna add 476 years. Once we add those 476 years, we come up on March the 14th, but then we've got to add those final days, 24 days, and you get April the 6th, 32 AD. Does that sound familiar? And that's the exact date, according to those calculations, when on a day in Jerusalem, a man rode in on a donkey, declaring himself to be Messiah, the Prince. Isn't that incredible stuff? Now that information has been available for years and years and years. But, but every time I go over it, every time I touch it, every time I feel the, the, the supernaturalness of this watch, this timepiece, it gives me chills. Because what God is saying to us through His Holy Word is, I know the future. I control the future. I'm sovereign over the future. And I'm trying to tell you in advance so you'll be prepared. You know, Jesus Christ had that very experience as a man and as God when He was coming into the city wishing it could be different, wishing it could be received by His people because the prophet Daniel had told Him in advance. And yet they missed it. Here's what He said. Let's just let's see Jesus' words. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, or the, the gospels describe, it says, and when he approached the city, he saw the city and he wept over it. You know why he wept over it? Because he knew they hadn't checked their watch. He had sent prophets. He had given details. He had told them the time, but they had overlooked it and not consulted it. So here's what he said. 
if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. Remember those first three purposes? That's what makes for peace. If you'd known that, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. In other words, because you miss the time, judgment is coming. I hate it for you, but judgment is coming. And you know why? Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You missed it. 69 weeks between the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the time Messiah the Prince would enter the holy city, but the people missed it. Well, let's go on in verse 26 and look what verse 26 says. It says, then after the 62 weeks, there's seven weeks, 62 weeks. But after all of that, it says the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come, remember the people of the prince who is to come, will come and destroy the city that is Jerusalem and its sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war and desolations are determined. In other words, he says what Jesus said, there's because you missed the time of your visitation, there's going to be judgment. Now, the thing that's striking about verse 62, I mean, verse uh, 26, is when you come to it, he's talked about 62 weeks and seven weeks, now he's up to 69 weeks, and you expect him to go and say, now in the 70th week. You expect him to go ahead and finish it out. But instead of finishing it out, he doesn't mention the 70, 70th week at all. He just tells us some events that are gonna occur after the 69th week. And you might just look there and you might say, well, why does he do that? Why didn't he mention that? Why didn't he mention the 70th week? Why he just talks about these significant events? Well, let me tell you, I believe the reason he doesn't mention the 70th week at this point is because when Israel rejected Jesus as they're at the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, what God did when he saw that he could no longer work his purposes, you know, those six purposes through Israel, they had rejected it's like he decided to hit the pause button on the clock. And suddenly it stopped. This countdown to the end of history stopped at the 69th week. It's kind of like the shuttle launches. You know, every once in a while, the shuttle's about to go off and it gets down to the final seconds and then all of a sudden, Houston, we have a problem and beep, it stops. And everybody sits still. There's a, a pause. There's a gap. And that's exactly what happened here. Suddenly you had these 70th week, 70 weeks that should have just kind of gone on and finished themselves out. But because Israel rejected their Messiah, now all of a sudden there's these 69 weeks on this hand. And all of a sudden we have this great gap. And over here there's this one week kind of hung out here. And what's in between the 69 weeks that have already occurred in this one week? What's in the gap? It's us, isn't it? It's the church of Jesus Christ because God said, I can't finish my purposes right now with this nation because they've rejected my Messiah. So I'm gonna to turn to a different kind of people in a different way. I'm gonna open up my grace to the world and not just work through a singular nation, but to any heart who will trust me and believe in me. And that's us. So between this gap, however long it goes, stands the church of Jesus Christ. 
But right after this 69th week ended, there were two major things. Write them down on your outline that occurred. Notice what it said in verse 25 or verse 26. It says that Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. <laughs> and think about it. Is that not what happened? He came in with triumphal entry. They rejected him. Then they crucified him. And in his crucifixion, even his friends ran away and he had nothing. But here's what I want you to know he did do. He did accomplish three of the purposes of verse 24. Because if you look back on your outline, what you're going to see when Jesus Christ was crucified, he did finish the transgression, didn't he? And he did put an end to sin. And he did make atonement for iniquity. So out of Israel flowed salvation from sin. And then the pause button's hit. The other thing, as predicted by Jesus, is the people of the prince who is to come, this future ruler that we've been talking about in the last couple of messages, the people of that prince who is to come did come in and destroy Jerusalem and its temple. It was the Romans. Remember, the future empire is a Roman empire. But now this is the old Roman empire. And so when the people revolted in 70 AD against Rome, Titus was sent in with his legions and they destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They, they were so mad by the time they got into the city, they pulled all over every stone, plowed it up, and then burned it with fire. In fact, if you go to Rome today, you will, you will find in Rome the Ark of Titus. And on the reliefs in that great ark that stands there is them bringing the holy instruments from the temple after they burned it, even to this day. Well, that's what occurred, those two great events. Messiah was cut off, the people of the prince who is to come destroyed the city and the sanctuary. And all this occurred after Israel's time clock stopped. And it still stopped, even as we sit here. But then that begs the question. And you know what the question is? Well, what's gonna start it? Isn't that the question you wanna ask? What will start the clock to finish out that one week. Well, I want you to look at verse 27. It says this. Now follow real closely. After it talks about this destruction, suddenly in verse 27, a pronoun, he, is introduced and we don't know where he comes from. All it says is this. And he will make a firm covenant with the many, that is with Israel, and then he says these words, for one week. Ooh, there it is. For one week. And the question is, well, who is he? Well, if you just use normal grammar and all languages have kind of some of the same rules, you go back to the nearest antecedent and the nearest antecedent for he is in the previous verse, verse 26. It's around the people of the prince who is to come. Ah, the prince who is to come. That's the he of verse 27. And the prince who is to come will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Well, remember, that prince who is to come, come from the people who destroyed the, the temple in the city, that is Rome, and what it's indicating is there comes a place where there's this, in the future, still future to us, is this charismatic world ruler of this revived Roman Empire that we talked about in Daniel 7. Remember the little big horn? The horn that got above all the other horns? And, and circles up all the, the energy of these nations to become the predominating world empire. When that, listen to me, when that ruler signs a covenant with Israel, you're going to hear the clock go. Tick, 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 tick. It'll start again. When the covenant 
is signed. And you ask, well, why is he going to sign a covenant with Israel? Well, we can only speculate at this point. Maybe he's signing the covenant with Israel in order to bring peace about of the whole world because in the initial stages of this world ruler's efforts, he's trying to bring peace to the world. And so maybe he's bringing Israel under his wing in order to settle what is the ongoing dispute that we deal with even to this day between Jews and Arabs. The interesting thing is he's bringing and he's signing this new covenant, not the United States. There's a new empire ruling over the world. And so he ushers in Israel into his fold, promising peace and protection and serenity in the volatile days that the world is experiencing at that time. Now we're going to look just for a moment at that last week, but before we do, let's just marvel for a moment with the incredible, incredible events that have to take place in order for this last week to actually come about. Some of which just a hundred years ago would have been unthinkable. That set this scenario up. Here's what they are. First, Israel had to become a nation again. Just think about it. For 2,000 years, there was no nation. All this would make no sense. But in 1947, Israel became a nation. Israel had to possess Jerusalem again. Well, they didn't have Jerusalem then, but 20 years later in 1967, in the Six-Day War, they recaptured the city of Jerusalem. Israel will need a temple again because remember, he makes a firm covenant in verse 27 in the middle of the, this one week and he'll put a stop, notice it says, to the sacrifice and grain offerings. Evidently, there's, the temple is in operation again, but there is no temple in Jerusalem right now. But there is, within the Orthodox community in Israel, efforts to one day bring that about, even right now, even developing the temple instruments. That's why uh, David Solomon from one of the temple institutes over there, he says, I don't know when it's going to happen, but I can promise you this. One day, the temple will be built here again. Then we have to have the event of the rise of a world-dominating empire out of a confederation of nations that we've talked about in the past that comprised that old Roman empire, at least some of the nations of that old Roman empire, some of the parts of it. And we would have thought that is unthinkable because those territories have been fractured for a thousand years. But you know what? In our generation, in yours and my lifetime, we have seen over in that part of the world, in Europe and Asia, the old Roman Empire slowly assembling itself together through economic and political ties. Just even here recently, the rise of the Euro state, the rise of the Euro dollar economically, putting all these pieces back together. Does that mean that this empire's here? No, but just that confederation of nations equals the same GNP as the United States or more as an economic power. And as that grows more and more solid, at least what we begin to see is the possibility that this could be the movement of God for this final world empire. And of course, you've also got to have what we call the Antichrist, the one that Dan talked about last week. And the Antichrist's role in relationship to this world ruler is to bring Israel into a relationship with this world ruler the way the Christ intended to bring the people of Israel into a relationship with the eternal ruler. And he does. He creates a compact. He creates a covenant in that time. Now those things, those are some of the things we just sit and marvel at. The thing that's interesting to me is here's Daniel prophesying 2,500 years ago. And he's telling us things that right now kind of chill us because we can at least see the possibility of these things coming about. And he's told us in advance in a miraculous 
Incredible prophecy. A watch to watch. So let's look at this final week. Here's what he says. He says this prince who is to come will make a firm covenant with the many, that is Israel, for one week. But then it says, in the middle of the week, that's important, the middle of the week, for some reason, he will come into this temple area, this holy place, and he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offerings. So we could go over here and we could say, well, okay, then this week needs to be broken down into two segments. Remember, a week is seven years. So we have three and a half and three and a half. So he enters this covenant on the first hand. And he's going to bring peace to the world and peace to the Middle East and in particular peace to Israel. And that goes on for a while. And everybody thinks that man has finally triumphed over the world. And suddenly, somewhere in here, for reasons we can only speculate, rather than continuing on that particular trek, things begin to change and unravel. And in the most holy place, this is what Paul tells us and Daniel tells us and will tell us later on, suddenly this world ruler decides to deify himself and to deify man. And he uses the very temple in Israel to set up this human deification of sorts. And the people of Israel react to that and revolt against that. And out of that reaction, there's a tremendous persecution that takes place. Not only on them, but to anyone who believes. And the persecution becomes so intense that God uses that to finally bring Israel, the Jewish people, to a place where they not only call out for their Messiah, but they call out for Jesus, their Messiah. But it will be a desperate time. In fact, I want you to listen to the words of Jesus about this time that He told His disciples. Here's what He said. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet. There it is. He's telling, he's telling His disciples, listen, if you see the holy place being desecrated in this abomination of desolation where man is standing where I should be in the holy place, deifying himself, desecrating this temple, when you see that, let the reader now understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let him who is on the housetop not go down to get the things out of his house and let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and those who nurse babes in those days. But pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not has occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever shall. These last three and a half years will literally be hell on earth. It's the great tribulation. And it ends with Armageddon that the Revelation speaks about. But in that time, God uses that time of persecution to bring Israel back to Himself in a proper alignment with the proper Messiah. And what happens at that point at the end of verse 27? Notice the change because right at that moment, at the height of that persecution, notice the last statement in verse 27. It says, on the wing of abominations. In other words, at the height of these abominations will come another person. Who is that? Another person who will make desolate even unto a complete destruction. One that is decreed. And this person will be poured out on the one who makes desolate. In other words, there will come another person who will destroy the prince 
who has come to destroy Israel, the world ruler. His empire will be overturned by this other person. And who is that other person? Well, we know that other person is to be the true Messiah. In fact, just turn back a page to Daniel chapter 7, and you'll see this concept has already been fleshed out for you, and all Daniel's doing, or all the vision's doing, is just rehearsing it again. But in Daniel chapter 7, when it's talking about the little horns and the one big horn, and then it talks about this world ruler, in verse 25, look what it says about that world ruler. It says, there'll come a place where that world ruler will speak out against the Most High. That's in the middle of the week. And he will wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be, that is the saints of God, will be given into his hand for a time, that's one, times, that's two, and a half time, that's three and a half. That's how long it'll last, same thing. But there will come a time after that, it says, when the court, the divine court will sit for judgment, verse 26. And his dominion, this world ruler's dominion will be taken away. He'll be annihilated and destroyed forever. And that will occur with the coming of the true prince, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And when that happens, verse 27, then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will finally and completely be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. God will crush man's effort to deify himself. And he will bring at this moment an end to human history. And as he brings human history to this divine closure, he will also accomplish the other three purposes he, attended, he intended for Israel back in verse 24. Look at him. Here's what he'll do at that moment. He will bring in everlasting righteousness. He will bring the kingdom of Christ to earth. He will seal up vision and prophecy. There'll need, there'll, no need for any more prophecy. Like Paul said, he said, when the, when, when the end comes or when Christ comes, no more prophetic need. And then lastly, that temple. Remember the temple that had been polluted by the abomination of desolation in the holy place? Suddenly it'll be cleansed. The Antichrist taken away, the world ruler taken away, and as Revelation 22 says, then in the holy place there will be no need for a temple because there will stand God Himself. God Himself. And at that moment, history closes and the 77s are complete and God has finished His work through the nation of Israel. It's an amazing timepiece. Really, it's just an amazing... I, all week I just sat there and got chills. It's just an amazing timepiece given to us and to every generation to understand and to know and then to plan for. Now here's what else I want you to know. You know God has given you 70. He's given the human race a 70 too. It's 70 years. In Psalm 90, here's what Moses wrote. He said, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years. Of course, if you eat wheat germ and take vitamins and work out every day, Moses goes on to say you might push it to 80. But in general, after all that we do, even since the day of Moses, our average lifespan is in the 70s, isn't it? You know why? Because that's what God determined it would be. He set that biological clock and it started ticking the day you were born. But now, having done that, having set that timepiece for you, 70 years, Here's what he says. Now that you know that, now that you can calculate it, here's what you need to do. You need to number your days in order that you 
may present to the God that you're going to a heart of wisdom. You know, you would hate to arrive and have Jesus Christ crying his eyes out for you because you didn't know the time of your visitation. No, what you want to do is step into eternity with God laughing and cheering just like you did for the church in Franklin and so excited to have you here because you numbered your days with a heart of wisdom. Did you know there's some purposes for you to accomplish in this brief span of time on this planet? Let me just give you six here as we close. Here's the first one. You need, these 70 years are given to you to put an end to sin, your sin. Your sin. 70 years, you need to get over it. <laughs> and God has given you resources to help you get those things out of your life. Not only that, but He's done this. He's also given you 70 years so you could experience forgiveness and mercy and grace and abundant supply. It doesn't matter how hard you've been, how bad you've been, where you've come from. You've got a God who's so much bigger than that and He wants to bless you with forgiveness and not only give you forgiveness, but then go on in a very positive way to empower you with His mercy and grace. That's our God. And He's given you 70 years to do that. And notice what else He's done. He's given you 70 years so you can embrace righteousness, so that wherever you go, you can be a sweet savor to those around you, a person who's clear about where He's headed, a person whose priorities are straight, a person who's a life giver to others. Because you've not just had the experience of forgiveness, you've embraced the power of righteousness. And when you do that, you become one of the most powerful forces on earth. He's given you 70 years so that you could discover your spiritual gift and a personal ministry. Everyone has a gift and everyone should have a ministry. I know some of you say, well, I don't know what mine is. Some of us have been constrained by thinking that what it meant to have a ministry was either preach or usher or teach Sunday school. But God has an infinite number of ministries, an unfathomable array of ministries. And in that incredible array of ministries, in that tank is your ministry. Somewhere in there is your ministry. And you've got 70 years to get there and begin to make a difference. And that leads us to the next one. That ministry should impact your world for the kingdom of God before you leave. You should have advanced the cause of Christ an inch, a foot, or a mile. But you should have advanced it before you step off this planet. That's God's purpose for giving you those 70 years. And then in it all, He's given you 70 years so that you could prepare for everlasting life. Because that's what's going to be yours. 70 sevens are given to Israel to complete their purposes. And 70 years are given to most of us to complete our purposes. And Jesus summed it all up this way. Behold, I've told you in advance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the greatness of your word. Daniel was humbled by it. Daniel spent time reading it and believing it and became one of the great figures of human history. And Father, I have no doubt for all of us in this room that we're being called to read it and believe it so that we can be great in your sight. Difference makers, kingdom builders, devoted followers, 
all the joy and the blessing we've experienced here this morning, oh God, we owe every bit of it to you. Every bit of it. You've built this place. But it will not go on or prosper or be great unless we continue to have a desperate hunger for you and for your power and for the leadership of your spirit and for a courageous belief in your word. Oh God, help us to be that kind of people. And thank you for this timepiece, this marvelous clock that tells us you really are in control. And thank you for life, that we get the opportunity to partnership with you in this world. I pray that we can present to you a heart of wisdom because we've accurately numbered our days. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.